Right, well we're into um, Acts chapter 10, and uh, so our second talk on the Acts of the Apostles, which as we saw last time is really Luke's Gospel continued. Um, and as we come on to chapter 10, you'll remember last time we uh, left Peter in a Joppa, uh, modern day Jaffa, um, remember a, a suburb of Tel Aviv, um, and he's staying there with a guy called Simon, um, who's a tanner. And um, we've 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 seen thus far how the early church, according to what Jesus had told them, that they'd been witnesses for him in Jerusalem, then Judea, and Samaria. And really, from this point onwards, we, we really do move on into Acts to like the ends of the earth, as it were. And so we're seeing Luke giving us the history of how the gospel spread from Jerusalem uh, right through, really, to the then known world. And uh, as we come on to chapter 10, we are about 10 years into the story. So we're about Pentecost plus 10 years. That's the kind of timeline that we're on at the moment. And as we keep going through the Acts, at, at key points I'll be showing you, you know, kind of like how the years are going by and what the actual chronology, you know, here and there is. So um, Peter in Joppa staying with uh, Simon the Tanner. Now, as we move into chapter 10, Luke tells us of... Um, a Roman centurion who was called Cornelius. So here we have a Gentile. And Cornelius lived in Caesarea, which was 30 miles north of Joppa. So up the coast, 30 miles. And Luke tells us that, even though he was a Gentile, that he was a devout and God-fearing man. So even though a Gentile, here was someone who knew that the God of Israel was the one true God. And this Cornelius, this Roman centurion, had been in prayer. And whilst he was praying, an angel had appeared to him and told him to send for a man called Peter who was staying in Joppa with a tanner called Simon. And the angel, having told Cornelius that, Cornelius sent men to go and get this Peter down in Joppa. And they arrived in, in Joppa the next day. Now Luke tells us um, that uh, around the time that these men arrived looking for this Peter, that Peter was on the roof praying. And he got hungry and he was waiting for his meal. Uh, some food was being prepared for him. And while he was waiting for his grub, um, the Lord gave him a vision. And this large sheet came down from heaven, and uh, in it, it were all, all manner of unclean animals. So these were all creatures that, according to the law of Moses, were unclean. So they mustn't be eaten, they mustn't be used in sacrifices, anything like that, basically. Stay well away from them. And there were animals in, in this sheet, there were reptiles, and there were birds. 
And what all these animals had in common is that they were all unclean. So under the law of Moses, you don't touch. And in the vision, he was told to eat these creatures. Like, here's lunch. Um, and Peter protested and said that he couldn't possibly do that because they were unclean. And a voice said to him that he wasn't to call impure what God had made clean. Because the point here, because of the death of Jesus, the Old Testament law has passed away. It's been superseded. It was temporary. It's gone. So the rules and regulations and restrictions of the Old Testament law do not apply to believers under the New Covenant. So, you know, all these animals are no longer unclean. And of course, what is happening here is that Peter, through this vision, he's being prepared for the arrival of these Gentiles who are coming to take him to Cornelius himself a Gentile. And remember, to the Jews under the law, the Gentiles were unclean. You weren't supposed to eat with them, you weren't supposed to go into their house. You could trade with them, but you couldn't eat with them, you couldn't uh, you know, go into their houses. Unclean. And this is the preparation God is preparing Peter. Anyway, the men who have come from Cornelius arrive, they, they find Peter, and, um, and the Holy Spirit tells Peter to go with them. So Peter is told by the Lord, these people, I've sent them, you're to go with them. And uh, Peter invited them in as guests and, and they stayed the night. And uh, so the next day they set off and, and, and Peter, with these men, um, arrives at the house of Cornelius up in Caesarea and uh, they get there the next day. And uh, Cornelius had already gathered all his friends and all his family. So this would have been a, a fairly large crowd of people. And uh, he gathered them together, you know, so that when Peter arrived, you know, sort of like whatever God was going to do, you know, sort of like they were all there together. And when Peter arrived, Cornelius actually fell at his feet. You know, he did obeisance to him, you know, he fell down at his feet. But Peter told him, no, no way, forbade him to do it. He said, look, I'm just the man, don't, don't, don't fall down at, at my feet, mate. And uh, let, let's actually read um, from verse 27 and uh, get, get what happens next. And what we have here is what you could think of as the Gentile Pentecost. We, we saw the outpouring of the Holy Spirit ten years earlier in Jerusalem and that was upon people, Christians, who were Jews. What we're going to see now is a Gentile Pentecost. Um, starting from verse 27. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. What lovely response to the vision. It's swift obedience here. A, a real prejudice has been swept aside in Peter. It resurfaces again, as we'll see later on, but, but this is Peter open to, to what God is doing. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. 
That's nice, isn't it? To not raise objections with God. We do that too often, don't we? May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. See, Peter's like that and me, that's why he was staying with Simon the Tanner. He says, nice seafront apartment. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead and on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptised with water? They have been baptised, sorry, they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. So here, now, all these Gentiles at Cornelius' house, they become a Christian, you know, they, they all get saved, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. They're baptised with the Holy Spirit immediately at the point of um, conversion. They speak in tongues, and it's clear to Peter and to his comrades that what had happened to them those ten years ago in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost had now happened to the Gentiles. And, uh, and notice as well, immediately, Peter says, right, baptise them. They've become Christians, baptise them. No waiting, no classes, no probationary period. They're believers, so baptise them. 
Now, as we move into chapter 11, word gets back, obviously, um, to Jerusalem, and well, all around the area, as what has happened at the house of Cornelius. Remember, thus far, the church is, is virtually entirely Jewish. Now, we, we saw last time, didn't we, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. There was a, a total Gentile converted. So we saw glimpses there, it was beginning to happen, but by and large, the church, the Christian church, is still Jewish. And now, word gets round that the Gentiles have clearly and unmistakably become Christians, and they have had a Pentecost. They speak in tongues, they've been baptised with the Holy Spirit, just like the church in Jerusalem had been ten years earlier. So word is getting round, and Peter returns back to Jerusalem in order to report. Thus far, Jerusalem is like the centre of the Jewish church, because that's where it started, and you know most of the apostles are, are based there. So Peter goes back, and immediately he's criticised by people, and these would have been Christians, Jewish Christians in the church. He's criticised for entering a Gentile household and by eating with them. Here's the old problem. The Jewish Christians finding it so hard to realise, and it was hard for them to realise, that they weren't under the law anymore. The law of Moses that they loved so dearly is gone, been you know, superseded by the new covenant. And it's difficult for them to understand this. And so therefore their prejudices against um, the Gentiles come out and, and they say, look Peter, you shouldn't have done it. You ate with them. You went into their house. No way, that's wrong. It's salvation is only for the Jews, that's really what they believe. And yet the ironic thing is that throughout the Old Testament it was quite clear that the idea was Israel to be a means of salvation to the Gentiles as well. But, but Israel kept forgetting this and even the Christian uh, Jews were having a job remembering it. But nevertheless, Peter explains what, what happened to them. He tells them, you know, he went along, he was telling them about Jesus and, you know, and explains to them everything that had happened. And, and I mean, it was kind of therefore pretty obvious that, that God was accepting the, the Gentiles. And, um, and he says to the people who were you know, saying you shouldn't have done it, he was saying, look, if I hadn't have gone, if I hadn't have eaten with these Gentiles, I would have been opposing God. He's saying it is God who led me to the Gentiles. And, um, and the lovely thing is at this point, there's a good response from everyone there. The Jerusalem church responds really positively. And although there were people there who didn't like it, and we'll see later on as they emerge and become quite a force, but nevertheless, the Jewish church at large respond well to the fact that Gentiles were following Jesus. And, uh, and, 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 and the church actually said, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So it was good. It was, you know a positive response. And, um, and then Luke gives us a little bit of background as to how the, the gospel had been spreading. Um, remember we saw last time that when Stephen, the first martyr, had, had been killed, that persecution broke out. An awful lot of the believers in Jerusalem spread out. You know, a lot of them would have been from other countries and that, even though Jews. And they, they, they spread out. Persecution scattered them. And so they scattered back to, to all over, basically, uh, the then known world. And, um, and Luke tells us how 
by that point that the gospel has spread as far as Phoenicia. Now, Phoenicia then was where the cities of Tyre and Sidon were, um, and that was on the northeast from Israel. You got the northeast on the Mediterranean coast or modern-day Lebanon. So it had gone that far. It had got as far as Cyprus, Luke tells us, so that's out into the Med, you know, due, due west, um, you know, kind of the island of Cyprus where one goes on holiday. And also it had got as far as Antioch. Now Antioch was even further north, um, and that was kind of, Antioch was actually the third most important Roman city in the then known world. So Antioch was an incredibly important um, place um, and that was Syria, all right? Antioch was in where we will call now Syria. So, you know, the, the gospel got that far as well. And, um, but again, Luke tells us that, that so far, largely all this has been Jews evangelizing Jews. But now, the word has got out what's happened to the house of Cornelius. And Luke tells us that then, and it began in Antioch, the Jewish Christians then began to evangelize Greek Gentiles. And this was the point. Up until now, even though the Christians were spread quite wide, they were Jews and they were only evangelizing other Jews. Now, because they've heard what God has done at the house of Cornelius, word has got out, the Jerusalem church and the apostles have okayed it. Now, in Antioch, the Jews start to evangelize the Greek Gentiles. And loads of Greek Gentiles become Christians, many believed. Now, news of that gets back to Jerusalem. And... Barnabas, who is a name we're going to come across quite a lot, is dispatched to investigate. So the Jerusalem church gets word, hey, loads of Gentiles are getting converted up in Antioch. Barnabas, you go and see what it's all about. And Barnabas goes up to Antioch and he, he sees it and he realises, yeah, this is the Lord. Just as Peter realised at the house of Cornelius, God is doing this. Barnabas now sees that God is doing this in Antioch as well. The Gentiles are becoming Christians. The church is now no longer just a Jewish affair. It is becoming a largely Gentile affair. And Barnabas encourages them all he can. Now what he does next is important because Barnabas takes a trip up to Tarsus. And he goes to Tarsus. Now Tarsus was you go even further north than Antioch and then a bit to the east and um, it's kind of uh, the, 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 the coast of southern Turkey all right? or you know, modern day Turkey as it is now um, and uh, he, he goes up to, to Tarsus and he finds out somebody who we saw last time Saul the one, the great persecutor of the Christians who we saw become a Christian last time Barnabas goes up to find Saul and takes Saul, obviously who is later to become Paul, takes him back to Antioch. And uh, they stay there with the church for a year. Right. And it was at Antioch where the believers were first called Christians. 
it was Gentiles who came up with that term. It was actually a derisory term, and it meant the Christ party, but it was a derisory term. But that's what Christian means, you know, literally the Christ party, an adherent of Christ. So someone who follows Jesus. But this is where the early believers were first referred to as Christians. And then over the years, the name stuck. And uh, that has become the official, as it were, name. Now, at that point, uh, some prophets came up from Jerusalem to Antioch. Uh, one of them was a guy called Agabus. And he prophesied, predictive, you know, he actually he was a telling the future type prophet. He predicted that there was going to be a famine that was going to cover the whole Roman world. So what we're talking about is, 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 is the world insofar as the, you know, where the, the, the Roman Empire had spread. And uh, Luke adds in the narrative that that actually happened um, a couple of years later during the reign of the Emperor Claudius. So, I mean, that prophecy came true and Agabus had a good reputation for prophecies coming true, predictive ones. So, you know, they, they knew that he was a, a genuine prophet. And, uh, but in response to this, the, um, the church at Antioch, remember that the Antioch church is now largely Gentile. There are Jews in it, because it started off as the Jews in Antioch, but now the Gentiles are coming in as well. So this mixture in Antioch, the first Jewish Gentile church, um, sends relief to the churches down in Judea, who would have been kind of all Jewish. Um, and they, they send money down. And, um, and Luke tells us that the, um, they sent the gift uh, through Barnabas and Saul. So Barnabas and Saul took this financial gift down to Jerusalem. And, and Luke says that they took it down and they gave it to the elders in Jerusalem. And that's the first time in the Acts of the Apostles that we see the word elders used for the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. It's used elsewhere referring to the elders of Israel, but this is the first usage in Acts of the term elders denoting the leaders of a church. And uh, so Barnabas and Saul take this uh, gift down there. And um, what happens from this point onwards? is that in the same way that Jerusalem had thus far been, as it were, the centre of Christianity amongst the Jews. It was like the base church that everything was fanning out of in the early days. And that's where the apostles were based. What, what happens now is that Antioch becomes the centre of the spread of Christianity through the Gentile world. and. Uh, that becomes Saul's base, or as we're going to see later on, he changed his name to Paul. Right, now we move on to chapter 12, and uh, we, we, we just get a kind of a bit of a, well, it's not really an aside here, but um, Luke tells us a bit about King Herod. And uh, now this is the Herod who had had John the Baptist, you know, cut his head off, and this is the Herod who tried Jesus. So this was the Herod that Jesus hit up against, all right? You know, still, still going strong. And um, what he does is he has James, the Apostle James. Now remember James and John, who Jesus called the Sons of Thunder? James and John, the two brothers, the fishermen. He has James executed, all right? 
And having done that, he saw that that went down well with the Jews. And Herod, you know, was a kind of, he liked to be in with the people that he reigned. Not because he cared about them, because it made his life easier. So anything he wanted to do that made the Jews happy, well, that was great with him. So he thought, oh yeah, that went down well. So what he then does is he has Peter arrested as well. And uh, obviously with a view to executing him as well. So James has been put to death by the sword and now Peter is arrested. And as soon as this happens, and obviously this is back down in Jerusalem, as soon as this happens, the Jerusalem church starts praying earnestly um, for Peter. Now, having been arrested, Peter is um, being guarded by four squads of four soldiers. So, so Herod isn't messing with him. Um, and this was during the feast, ironically enough, of the unleavened bread and Passover. So this is an anniversary of the death of Jesus, exactly, Passover. And um, so it's the night before his trial and Peter was asleep and there were two, two soldiers who were standing guard and there were two soldiers he was chained to. So one arm would have been chained to one soldier, the other arm would have been chained to the other soldier. There were two other soldiers not chained to him standing guards and there were three other squads of four soldiers in the jail, all there to guard Peter. Um, and Peter wakes up because he's been shaken. So he wakes up, someone shaking him, it's an angel, and tells him to get up and the chains fall off him. This is where Wesley gets his hymn from, my chains fell off, my, you know, it's this kind of imagery. And uh, so the, 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 the chains fall off of him, um, he gets dressed, he follows the angel past all the guards, the gates open up in front of them as they go through. Um, this is real outer limit stuff. You know, the da, 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 you know, the gates open, and out he goes. Now, all, all this time, he thought it was a vision, and it was only when he got outside he finds himself suddenly alone, in the middle of the night on the street, and he realised, no, this isn't a vision. This is actually happening. I was actually woken up by an angel shaking me. The chains actually fell off me. We actually walked past these guards who either didn't see us or whatever, and all the doors opened, and here I am in the street on my own. So he realises, no, this wasn't a vision. And he went to one of the houses where the church was praying. It was the house of a woman called Mary. Now, Mary, this, this, there are lots of Marys in the Bible. This isn't Mary, the mother of Jesus, the, or you know, it's not Mary Magdalene either. This is a Mary who was the mother of John Mark. Now, this is the first mention we get of John Mark in the Bible, and he is the gospel writer, the gospel according to Mark. It's him, all right? It's that John Mark. We're going to see him back in the picture later on, okay? So he goes to John Mark's mum's house, okay? And, the, the, you know, like there are people there praying for him. Now he bangs on the door and there's a maid there called Rhoda. She goes to the door to answer the door, all right? Now, when she saw who it was, Luke tells us that she was so overjoyed that she ran back into the house to tell the others but didn't let him in 
forgot to let him in. So Peter's standing there, still knocking at the door. She's gone. And, but she said, Peter's here, Peter's here, telling the others. Now, the church, all these people in the house, they tell her that she's out of her mind. They said, it can't be Peter, he's in jail. They said, maybe you saw his angel. Now, I mean, they're being silly now, because I mean, you know, obviously, but, it, you know, but they said, no, it can't be, you know, maybe it's his blah, 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 and they're getting all the it is what's, what, what do you mean it's Peter? And um, now, this is, this is kind of an encouragement for us, isn't it? They're praying for Peter. And they're praying with faith. They're expecting God to move. But when he does move, they can't believe it. So they discount that God could have set Peter free, which is what they were praying for. So the point is they didn't have a lot of faith, did they? But God still answered their prayer. So let that be an encouragement for us. And, um, you know, but Peter keeps banging and eventually someone gets around to letting him in, all right? And they realise that Rhoda wasn't out of her mind. They realise that it isn't an angel. They realise that it is Peter. So Peter comes in and he tells them what has happened. And, um, and then he, he tells them specifically to go and tell James. Now, this isn't the James of James and John who's been put to death by Herod. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And James was one of, you know, sort of, a, you know, a, a main figure in the Jerusalem church. And this is the James who wrote the letter in the Bible, the letter of James, all right? So Peter says, go and, go and tell James and the other brothers. So obviously, he went to one house but obviously, the Jerusalem church would have been in loads of houses praying that night. Obviously, they didn't all get together in one place. They were house churches, weren't they? And, um, but anyway, then Peter leaves that house and just goes off elsewhere, we're not told. Now then, the next morning, there's a right old commotion in the jail. Because, obviously, the court is, you know, is, is enjoined, and the prisoner is supposed to appear, but no prisoner. And there's a thorough search of the prison, of everywhere, but there's no sign of Peter at all. And um, Herod orders the, the guards to be executed. So, poor old guards, but um, crumbs. These were not easy times. Luke then just chucks in a little bit more about Herod, the demise of Herod. And, uh, and he just tells us how uh, an occasion eventually happened when um, Herod goes up to Caesarea, we, we've already come across Caesarea, it's where Cornelius lived, and um, he went up there and uh, there, there, there was a, a meeting with the, 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 the people from the cities of Tyre and Sidon, and um, it, it was a kind of a food dispute that he went to, to sort out. So he goes up to Phoenicia, modern day Lebanon. And uh, there was a particular festival that happened while he was there and he makes a speech and uh, the people there proclaim him to be a god, um, and um, he he didn't deny it. And Luke tells us that the angel of the Lord struck him down, and that he was eaten by worms and died. So whether that I mean eaten by worms and died, I mean I mean tapeworm, you know, giant tapeworm burst out, probably a bit like Adrian, you know, did out of John Hurt or something like that. But whatever it means, that the angel of the Lord struck him and he was eaten by worms and he died. Right, now, now Luke takes us back to Barnabas and Saul, all right, picks up the narrative uh, concerning them. And um, 
and they've they've been down to Jerusalem, haven't they? They've delivered the money, you know, to help them all through the famine. And now Luke picks up the narrative that after they've done that, uh, they went back to Antioch, and they take John Mark back with them. So is the John Mark, his mother Mary, that's where that where Peter went, where they were praying, right? So. Uh, John Mark now joins Barnabas and Saul, and they all go back to um, Antioch, having delivered the gift or relating to the prophecy that Agabus gave about the famine. Right, now that brings us into chapter 13 now, and the rest of the book of Acts, and this is largely where we're going to be for the rest of, you know, sort of like the time that we're, we're doing Acts, from this chapter onwards, the book is largely concerned with Saul to become Paul, the Apostle Paul. And it tells us of three what are called missionary journeys that he undertakes. There's three you know, journeys that Paul undertakes preaching the gospel in, in places where it hadn't been preached before. So there are three evangelistic trips that Paul makes that we're going to see of over the years that remain in the book. And then a final trip that he makes to Rome under arrest. And from this point onwards, we're going to see the final transition of the church from Jewish to Gentile. So but by the time at the beginning of the book of Acts, the church is Jewish. We're seeing the transition take place. By the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, although lots of Jews are Christian, and although lots of Jews are still being converted, the church has become virtually a Gentile affair. And of course, this was exactly what Jesus taught. Because Israel rejected him, the kingdom was going to be taken from Israel and given to the Gentiles. That will be reversed after the rapture, when the church is taken to heaven, then Israel is grafted back in. But we're seeing here the church replacing Israel according to the teaching of Jesus. And we're seeing again, and we honed in on this last time, the reason why the only Gentile writer in the entire Bible wrote Acts. It's the only, this and Luke's Gospel are the only books written by a Gentile in the entire Bible, and that is why. It's the transition of the church from Jewish to Gentile. Now, in chapter 13, uh, the Antioch church had prophets and teachers, and uh, Saul and Barnabas were numbered amongst them. All right, So Saul and Barnabas were accepted as being prophets and teachers. And whilst they were worshipping and fasting, so all the prophets and teachers are worshipping, and they've been having a time of fasting, the Holy Spirit tells them to set aside Barnabas and Saul for the work that the Spirit had called them to. So now... Barnabas and Saul are set aside by God to work together in a particular thing. And it's going to be the beginning of these great missionary journeys that were undertaken in the spread of the gospel. And uh, having done that, the other people, all the other prophets and teachers, they laid hands on them after prayer and fasting and sent them on their way. So we now 
come to the first missionary journey. We're going to see three, uh, plus a final round, AD 46, 47, around there. So we're 15 odd years after Pentecost. So since we've started tonight from chapter 10, five more years have passed. Okay. Now, how they start off is um, they, they're travelling from Antioch, that's their base, uh, their base. They go to Seleucia on the coast, and from there they take a ship and they sail to Cyprus, 100 miles west in the Med, where people go on holiday, all right? And they, they go there, and they land in Salamis, which is on the east side of the island, and then they travel across the island, the 100 miles or so across the island, and they end up in Paphos on the west side of Cyprus. All right? Obviously, remember, they're, they're preaching the gospel all the while, so if they meet people, blah, blah, blah. But they, they, they end up on, um, on Paphos. And uh, John Mark goes with them. John Mark is part of their team. And just chucking from Colossians, we know that John Mark was actually Barnabas's cousin. So there's a family link between Barnabas and John Mark, okay. And uh, when they are in Paphos, they um, meet up with a, a, a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet who was called Bar-Jesus. And uh, he, he was also referred to as Elimus, which is a, a kind of a Semitic word which means sorcerer or wise man. So you've got a kind of a Magi type character. He's an occultist, all right not of the Lord in any way at all. And this guy, um, Elimus or, or Bar-Jesus, he was an attendant, like a, a personal assistant, to the proconsul of the island, a bloke called Sergius Paulus. Now the proconsul, he's the Roman in charge of, of Cyprus, all right. So, I mean, Cyprus was a Roman colony, as most of, you know, the surrounding Med was. And um, so this guy is a personal assistant to uh, Sergius Paulus. Um, but Sergius Paulus actually hears of the arrival of these people preaching, and um, he calls Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. To, he says, I want an audience with these people. I want to hear what they're saying. But um, Elimus hindered all he could. So Elimus did everything he could to prevent uh, the proconsul actually getting a hearing with um, Paul and um, Barnabas and uh, Silas, not Silas, John Mark. Now what we'll do is we'll actually read um, from verse 9, just so you can see what actually happens here. And we have this, Then Saul, who was also called Paul, <laughs> so by that now, he's got two names, but from this point in Acts, he's not Saul anymore, he's Paul. So from now on, he's Paul the Apostle, okay. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. These Christians being politically correct again, right? You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? 
now the hand of the Lord is against you, you are going to be blind and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. This is the classic way that God turns the tables on Satan. Satan is desperately, through this Jewish sorcerer, occultist, trying to prevent the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, hearing the gospel. As a result of his attempts to do that, the Lord works this miracle, strikes him blind through Paul, and as a result of this, the proconsul becomes a Christian. So now, the, the political, you know, the military political power leader of Crete has now become a Christian. So that, that's absolutely amazing. Now, they leave Paphos, they move on, and, um, yeah, I mean, they'd have planted a baby church there. Right, but they, they move on and uh, they, they sail north to Perga, a place called Perga, that's a town, in a region called Pamphylia. Right? Now, this is modern day Turkey, all right. And when they got there, John Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. Now, that will feature later. John Mark goes back to Jerusalem, just note that. Um, so, having got to Pamphylia, they then move on a hundred miles inland, so this is inland into Turkey, modern-day Turkey, and uh, heading north, and uh, they, they go to a place called Pisidium Antioch. Now, don't get that mixed up with the Antioch where they started off in Syria, sorry, different place completely, modern-day Turkey. And uh, remember, Paul himself was from Tarsus. That, that was in modern-day Turkey as well. So this is Paul's home ground. And um, so they get to Presidium Antioch, and on, on the Sabbath, as became their habit, they went to the synagogue, and um, Paul was asked to preach. This was quite normal in the synagogues. They had a very laid-back approach. And, uh, you know, if, if some people came who seemed to have something to say, they were Jews, you, you come, you, you, you teach us today share with us. So they, they invite Paul to preach in the, um, in the synagogue. So um, I'll, I'll take it from verse 16 and we'll actually see this. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to the people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled for 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, i.e. King David, God has brought to Israel the Saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. 
as John was completing his work, he said, who do you think I am? I'm not that one. No, he's coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, children of Abraham, and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent, I to the Jews. The people of Jerusalem and their rulers didn't recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him, they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath. Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he was seen by those who had travelled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead, never to decay, is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. So it is stated elsewhere, you will not let your holy one see decay. For when David has served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried, and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. There you got it. The laws, you know, the law was to show you you were sinners, not to save you. It's Jesus, the new covenant that saves you. Take care then what the prophets have said does not happen to you. And then he quotes, Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish. I'm going to do something in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. Uh, Paul, um, lost my place. Yeah, 44, yeah. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. And then he quotes, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now that's quoting Isaiah. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. It's just worth noting that. They believed because they were appointed to eternal life. They weren't appointed to eternal life because they believed. It was the other way around. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region, but the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. 
So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So now you can really see that Paul is saying there's a kind of now it's the Gentiles. Okay. Now then, in chapter 14, they um, move eastwards and they travel 100 miles to um, Iconium. This is still modern-day Turkey, so they're, 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 they're now moving eastwards all right, along Turkey. So they've kind of come from Cy- to Cyprus, they've gone north and now they're heading back. So they're doing a big circle, like, you know, kind of um, a, a, a clockwise circle. And, um, and doing that, they, they move into the Roman province of Galatia. And this was the province where eventually Paul wrote to the churches there, you know, the epistle to the Galatians. And uh, so they move into the um, area of uh, Galatia and um, they, they, they go first to the synagogue and Luke tells us that a number of Jews and Gentiles became Christians and, and, and believe. And, um, and, you know, sort of like that was, that was good. And uh, Paul and Barnabas stayed there for, for some time and, and, and Luke tells us that, you know, that the, the Lord worked, you know, sort of like miracles through them. Um, the city divided and um, over them, some believed and others kind of hated them and, and a plan was hatched to, to, to kill them. And so they, they got wind of this plan and they moved southeast and went down to um, Lystra and Derby. It's all still in the um, province of Galatia. All the time preaching. Luke says, preaching all the way. So everywhere they came to, trying to find ways to tell people about the Lord. Now, um, in uh, when they get to a place called Lystra, Paul heals a crippled man. And um, the people there think that he and Barnabas are two of their gods. They, they worship loads of gods. And they think that there's Zeus and Hermes. And um, Paul, Paul preaches to them. I just... Um, uh, says, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, men, why are you doing this? We're only men like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they have difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul, dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples gathered round him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas... Uh, leave uh, left for uh, Derby. So trouble there, and um, you know, but nevertheless, the Lord, um, you know, kind of a uh, helps them out. And um, in Derby, lots of people get saved, and um, they then what they do is they then retrace their steps and they go back through Lystra, Icodium, and Pisidium, Antioch, strengthening the believers. So now they change direction and they go back to the places where they'd already been to and uh, they appoint elders in these churches that that they've planted like the months earlier um, and they appoint the elders with prayer and, and fasting. And then they head back down south, so 
back to the Med, you know, coast of um, Turkey, and uh, they go back to, to Perga again, and uh, they, they preached there, and then they, they, they went to Italia, which was, was the port, if you were in Perga and wanted to sail, Italia was the um, local port, and uh, so they went there, and they sailed straight back to Antioch. So they didn't go via Cyprus, they went straight back to Antioch. And, um, and they gathered the church there together and to report how things have been going. And so that, that ends the first missionary journey, all right? And uh, they, they stayed in uh, Antioch, Luke tells us, for um, a long time. Right, now then, in uh, chapter 15, we, um, we now move forward and we're AD 50. So another five years or so have gone by. We're now 20 years or so into the book of Acts. Um, and some men from the uh, church in Judea, um, you know, like the Jewish churches down in Israel arrive, they come up to Antioch and they're teaching that the Gentiles have to be circumcised. So what they're saying is that for a Gentile to become a Christian isn't enough. They have to become a Jew as well and get circumcised. This is the circumcision party. The rest of Paul's ministry is characterised by a fight with the circumcision party, who every way they could sought to undermine everything that he was doing. Um, and Paul and Barnabas have a, a, a what Luke calls a sharp dispute with them. And um, as a result of this sharp dispute, the church in um, Antioch appoints them with a few others, this is Paul and Barnabas, to go down to Jerusalem and consult with the apostles and the elders in the Jerusalem church. They're saying, look, we need to get this sorted out one way or the other. The Jerusalem church, we've got people coming from down there telling us all this. We've got to get this sorted, all right. So what happens is that uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others, they go down to Jerusalem and uh, they, they travel through Phoenicia, Lebanon and Samaria and all the way they go to the churches that have been planted and you know telling them all about what God's doing amongst the Gentiles, blah, blah, blah. And eventually they arrive in Jerusalem and the, the, the apostles are there and the elders and uh, welcome them. and. Uh, Paul and Barnabas give them a full report of everything that they're seeing God do amongst the Gentiles. Now, read from um, verse 5, because this is important. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. This was the heresy that Paul kept facing. The apostles and elders met to consider the question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and belief. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, as he did to us. He made no distinction, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done amongst the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. And this is James, Jesus' half-brother. 
Um, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophet are in agreement with this. As it is written, and then he quotes from one of the Old Testament prophets, After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name says the Lord who does these things that have been known for ages. So here James is quoting from the Old Testament saying, look, the Old Testament tells us that salvation is for the Gentiles. So James is combating the heresy of the circumcision party. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from meat of strangled animals and from blood. For Moses had been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues and every Sabbath. What he's saying is, no, they're not under the law. The Gentiles are under the covenant with, uh, with Noah. That was when God said, you know, eat meat, but you mustn't eat meat with the blood in. All right, you know, so an animal must be bled before you actually eat it, which happens in the civilised world anyway, because the meat goes rotten if the blood is left in it. So what, what he's saying is, no, the Gentiles are not under the law of Moses. He's saying we're not under the law of Moses anyway, anymore, let alone the Gentiles. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbath, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Saul, Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, which is the same as abstaining from blood, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things farewell. So, there, the Jerusalem church confirmed, no, Gentiles are not to be under the law of Moses. It's the new covenant. So, they all go back to Antioch, and obviously everyone in the church there is encouraged when this letter is read to them. And um, Judas and Silas, who were two of the guys sent up from the Jerusalem church, they were prophets. They, they said much to strengthen them. And, uh, and then they, they returned to Jerusalem after some time. Um, but Paul and Barnabas stayed up there in Antioch and uh, with, with various others they, they taught and, and, and preached. And then sometimes later, Paul suggested to Barnabas that they retrace the steps of their first missionary journey to see how all the churches are doing. And um, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. Now you remember John Mark left them, didn't he? when they just started. Paul didn't want to, all right? And 
Paul argued, no, he deserted us then, I don't want to take him now. But Barnabas said, no, I want to take him. And they had some dispute about it. They had a very sharp disagreement, and what they did is actually party company. It was so strong they couldn't work as a team anymore. So therefore, Paul and Barnabas split up. I mean, you know, they, they, they became friends later on, but they didn't work together anymore. And uh, so what happened is that Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus and went to strengthen the churches there. And Paul chose Silas. Now, he was the prophet we just saw from Jerusalem. Paul chose Silas and kind of went off with him. All right, so now Paul and Barnabas are split up. So Barnabas is doing a missionary journey with John Mark, and Paul is going to carry on his work, but now he's replaced Barnabas with Silas. So therefore, we come to Paul's second missionary journey, all right? And uh, he, he sets off with Silas, and he goes first of all up to uh, Lystra and, and Derby. And, um, but then, rather than taking the cypress Atalia route that he had earlier, what he does is he approached from the other direction, and so he goes north from Antioch up the coast, through Syria, and then travels west through Turkey, to the provinces of Cilicia and Galatia, but going first of all to his hometown of Tarsus. And so he's moving in that direction, all right, so going the circle like the other way this time, anti-clockwise, and uh, strengthening all the churches as, um, as he's going. Now in chapter 16, um, Paul and Silas, they move through Derby, they go to Lystra, and when they get to Lystra, they meet a guy there, a young man called Timothy. Now, this is the Timothy who Paul ended up writing letters to. And uh, Timothy, he had a Jewish mum, but a Greek father. So he was half Jew, half Gentile. Everyone in the church spoke well of him, and Paul had him join the team. So now Timothy joins Paul's like, apostolic team. But Paul has him circumcised because of the Jews. Now, Paul being a little bit naughty there. I know Timothy was half Jewish, um, but, I mean, Titus, who was a complete Gentile, who joined Paul later on, he didn't have Titus um, circumcised. We, we learn that from his uh, letter to the Galatians. But ironically, after all this stuff about the law, Paul has Timothy circumcised, so a little bit naughty there. Um, Anyway, they, they travel from town to town, but ironically, they, they're informing all the churches of the decision taken by the apostles in Jerusalem that uh, the Gentiles aren't to have the Jewish law imposed on them. It's a bit ironic there. He's just circumcised Timothy. And then they're going around saying, don't circumcise people. So anyway, I mean, we all get it wrong sometimes, don't we? And I mean, Paul was human as well. And, uh, and, and Luke tells us that these churches were strengthened and grew daily in numbers. And uh, Paul and his team, they press on and uh, they, they head northwest to the coast near the border of Greece and Thrace, which is modern-day Bulgaria. And um, now some intriguing stuff here, because Luke said that the Spirit kept them from preaching in the province of Asia. That was southwest Turkey. Then they tried to head north to Bithynia. That, that's up the Black Sea near Istanbul. 
Um, but the spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them. So you get this idea, Paul had decided where he wants to go, but the Holy Spirit keeps stopping him. So Paul could obviously be a little bit headstrong, but eventually the Holy Spirit won. And uh, Paul ended up in Troas in Western Turkey. And he had a vision one night of a man who was calling him over to Macedonia, saying, come over to Macedonia, Macedonia, northern Greece. Now then, Luke, in his narrative, then says, we left at once. So Paul's had this vision, and in his narrative, Luke says, we left at once. Luke has now joined Paul's team. Luke is with Paul and his team at this point during Acts of the Apostles. And uh, so they, they set sail, and uh, they stay overnight on Samothrace, which is a little island in the Aegean Sea, and then they move on to the Greek mainland and arrive in Philippi. And uh, while they're there, there's a woman called Lydia converted, and she was a, a dealer in purple goods. And she came from Thyatira, that's southwest Turkey. And um, that may, if she dealt in purple goods, she was very wealthy, and they stayed at her house. I just want to read um, verses 16 to 18 to get the next bit. So they're staying with her, okay. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned round and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. Because what Satan is trying to do here is through the demon in this girl to equate the gospel with occultism. And of course, occultism is of the devil. And uh, so what happens here is that Paul has cast this demon out of her. And um, in the Greek, all right, uh, for, you know, for, for, you know, for a spirit of divining. In the Greek, it's Python spirit. And the reason for that is that in that part of the world, um, they, they called anyone who could tell the future by the name Python. And the reason for that is that Python was the name of the mythical snake who was worshipped at the Oracle of Delphi. So that's, that's the connection. And it was how the people there kind of thought in terms of a diviner. So it became a generic term for anyone who was trying to tell the future. And uh, so what happens now is that the, the, the owners of this slave girl, they've lost their living. She can't tell the future anymore because the demon's gone. And so they kind of, you know, sort of get a load of persecution going against Paul and Silas. And uh, basically Paul and Silas are arrested and um, they're actually flogged, so, you know, so they're whipped, and uh, they're put in stocks in a cell. Now then, let's just read from verse 25. It's an important bit that we need to actually uh, read from the text. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns. They've been whipped and flogged, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Because he would have been put to death if a prisoner escaped. So he thought, I'll just rather kill myself. 
Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, then immediately he and all his family were baptised. You see, immediately baptised, no waiting, anything like that. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly. No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. This was someone who wasn't a Roman, but had it, had it confirmed a citizenship of Rome as an honour on them. And it gave them all the same rights as if they were Romans themselves. And there was one law for non-Romans and another you know, for the Romans, you see. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. That's important, they left. So now Luke isn't with them. Luke's gone his own way. But that bit of the time he was actually with Paul and Paul's um, team. Right, now then, in uh, chapter 17, they, they keep going. They're, they're moving west along the coast of northern Greece, so still going this way, anti-clockwise, uh, and they reach Thessalonica. And uh, there was a synagogue there, so Paul went there on the Sabbath and preached. And uh, the Jews got a mob up against them. Paul was staying with a guy called Jason, and they, this mob went to Jason's house, um, thinking that Paul and Silas were there, but Paul and Silas weren't. They'd already moved on, and uh, so they arrested Jason instead. <laughs> Poor old Jace. Be careful who you invite to your house. Um, but anyway, you know, that night actually Paul and Silas had left and um, they, they, they moved on a little bit further west to um, Berea and um, where their preaching got a bit more of a favourable response. I mean, there wasn't any persecution there. And, uh, but even though they're in Berea and even though the people there are responding well, the Thessalonian Jews turn up having found out where Paul and Silas had gone, the Thessalonian Jews turn up in Berea and start to cause trouble there. And um, so what, what the church there does, at Thessalonica, because there was already an existing church there, um, the, the church sends Paul um, to the coast to get him out of their town because <laughs> of all the trouble. And, um, but, but, Paul, uh, but Silas and Timothy stay in Berea um, a little bit uh, longer. And uh, Paul goes off to Athens, and he spends a bit of time in Athens on his own. Um, but eventually, he, he leaves word, or well, he, he he gets word to Silas and Timothy to uh, join him as soon as possible. And uh, so we're we're just going to end tonight just by uh, re reading up on what Paul got up to while he was in Athens on his own, uh, waiting for Silas and Timothy to 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 join him. 
So then, uh, this is uh, chapter 16. When Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, I won't go into what they believe, but these were representing different philosophical beliefs of the day, um, began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They, they misunderstood him. They thought that Paul was saying there were two gods. One's called Jesus, one called you know, being raised from the dead. So they got completely wrong and they thought that Paul was you know, preaching two gods and that. But uh, Paul had to clarify all that. Um, then they, they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. This was where they did all their debating in Athens and stuff like that. And they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we want to know what they mean. And then Luke says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. All right. So this is talking shop. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, an unknown God. Now what you worship as unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he doesn't live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needs anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Then he quotes, For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, he's actually quoting there from two of their poets, Epimedes Aratus. All right, they're two poets, you know, blah, blah, blah. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all peoples everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of Areopagus, also a woman called Damaris, and a number of others. So there he sees a few converts, but just notice the way that in Athens, he started his evangelism from where they were. He said, right, you believe in an unknown God, I'm going to tell you who he is. He says, some of your poets have said this, well, it's true as far as it goes. And then he takes what they believe and then builds on it and presents them with the gospel. No compromise, though, because God commands all men everywhere to repent. So there's Paul being a bit philosophical because he was amongst philosophical people. But although he was 
treat, you know, speaking to them in terms they'd understand, he still didn't compromise in any way at all on the gospel. Repent and believe in Jesus. So again we see, we mustn't fear the intellectual approach if the intellectual approach is needed for people, but as long as the intellectual approach doesn't mean that we actually take out the nitty-gritty of the gospel, which is forever, repent of your sins and believe on Jesus. Right, we'll carry on from chapter 18 next time.